You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpas on Adobe Radio and Jabberjaw Media. My name is Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you more great content week after week. Uh, this week we have Mr. Kurt Ballou from Converge and God City Studios. I know a lot of you guys know him from both. Uh, one of the most uh, amazing producers that I've heard in the last, I don't know, 10 years or more. Um, and Kurt is a fantastic dude. He got up early in the morning on tour to do this interview from the New, uh, New York, I believe, Brooklyn. And uh, so, yeah, everyone's a little groggy, but it's all good. And and uh, he made time for us, which was awesome. And, uh, yeah, Kurt's a rad dude. Anyways, uh, we are actually down here in Orange County right now at Podcast Movement. Uh, Mike Mowry from Jabberjaw and myself uh, hanging out, networking a bit down here, hitting some after parties and events and stuff. Pretty fun. So, uh, podcast movement's going on now. Uh, it's going to be actually, we'll be flying home when this airs on Saturday. Um, but I want to let you guys know we were down here having some fun and uh, definitely check out a lot of these podcasts. I'll, I'll put some stuff up in the show notes for you guys to check out, uh, meeting a lot of interesting people down here in, uh, in Anaheim. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into some of uh, the business stuff. As you know, we are launching the Peer Pleasure Podcast, Pleasure Seekers Club Patreon on monday august 28th so you're going to get the kurt episode on saturday we're going to put up a small teaser episode on sunday with mike and i discussing the patreon what's going to be on there and everything about that for you guys to check out and then monday you guys can sign up for that patreon uh pleasure seekers club on whatever tier you feel works best for you uh has the content you want uh the bonus goodies and all that stuff so super super stoked to bring that to you guys uh this coming monday uh, august 28th and we'll put all that information up for you guys with the actual address and everything once that goes live. But like I said, super stoked to put that out. So we are at PeerPleasurePodcast.com. We are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on all the socials and everywhere podcasts are available. Uh, if you don't listen on Adobe and you download from iTunes, be sure to rate and subscribe to the show. That's a big deal. It helps us uh, with our algorithms. It helps us with our chart position. It helps us with everything. So Really appreciate having you guys on week after week. Uh, we've been having a blast down here in California, and I'm super stoked to bring this episode with Kurt Ballou. We got some good insight in there and uh, you know a lot of his story, how he came up, and Converge has a new record coming out, and it is going to be fantastic. They just put out a 7-inch that uh, is absolutely ridiculous, like everything else, just the hardest-hitting shit. I mean, it's just amazing. So really appreciate you guys sticking with us week after week. I uh, can't say it enough, can't stress it enough. Look out for that Patreon and definitely rate and subscribe on iTunes. So without further ado, let's get into my episode with Kurt Ballou from Converge. Yeah. 
Well, Kurt Ballou, welcome to the Peer Pleasure Podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. Kurt from Converge and God City Studios, a myriad of other things, but uh, getting up early in the morning on tour to uh, have a chat. How you doing, man? I'm well. Apologies for my, my hoarseness and overall proudy demeanor. It's early and we played a show last night, so but, uh, but I'm up and feeling good. Man, I appreciate it. Where'd you guys play last night? Uh, I played at the Warsaw in Brooklyn, New York, and we have another show there again tonight. Oh, man. Okay. So you don't need to travel. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's nice. We usually do two shows in one city, but um, it's cool to uh, do that. We know we've got a lot of friends here, and there's good food and coffee and shit like that around, so it's a, it's a good spot to have uh, have two days of shows. Yeah, absolutely. Well, right on, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I, I wanted to... Uh, to drop back a little bit and kind of for my listeners, especially kind of, uh, start from the beginning, but, but, uh, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Massachusetts? I did. Yeah. Just out in the burbs. Okay. And how was, uh, how was your childhood for you? Were you kind of an outcast or were you, uh, you know, social child? No, absolutely. An outcast. Um, you know, typical, typical kind of punk, punk rock, uh, beginnings. Um, weird, weird kid, only child. Um, not a ton of friends, picked on by jocks. Um, you know, back, you know, I'm, I'm 43, so back like, you know, I, I, I grew up in the, the pre-internet age and the pre-Nirvana age too, when like the, the social class structure was still very much like that typical 80s movie thing where there were sort of like rigid divides between you know the jocks and the nerds and the punks and the you know the, well they weren't really punks but the rockers and the skaters and all that stuff. So. Um, you know, it was, it was social warfare in my high school, and I didn't do well in that. Um, but I found skateboarding, and then through that, I found punk rock, and um, and then I was off. Man, so you so like Thrasher magazine, the the whole uh... yeah, I mean Thrasher especially that was like sort of like my window to the world because that was like that was the thing that um, you know was available at newsstands in my town that you know was kind of like the internet for me. Or, um, thing that you know, you know, showed me that there was, you know, like a countercultural world outside of my own global environment. You know, that I otherwise would have had like no visibility to. Okay, and did you? So when you first saw Thrasher magazine, was that before you had started skateboarding? You saw it at the newsstands, or were you already skateboarding at that time? No, I was skating. Yeah, I mean, I like I started skating on a banana board. Oh <laughs> shit! Um, yeah. I mean, I was more of like a BMX kid um, initially, and then got to skate through that. And then, like, you know, like I didn't actually skate actively for that long. I kind of like got back into, into BMX, um, and I think you know people tend to gravitate towards things they're good at. And I wasn't really that good at skateboarding; I was better at riding bikes. So I kind of just went back to that. But like the attitude of of skating, I think, is something that has stayed with me. You know, the whole like. You know, idea of like reappropriating your environment for you know for your own um, benefit that, that skaters have always done, especially you know. I mean, there's, I mean, people in California talk a lot about like you know the ages of of skate parks and no skate parks and how that sort of affected skateboarding styles. Like, we never had parks around here until recently. So, I when I say here, I mean Massachusetts. I'm not in Massachusetts now, but when I grew up, you know, they're, they're there was only reappropriation when it came to skateboarding. There wasn't any kind of dedicated skate spots. So, um, you know, the idea of like seeing the world and how and how you could make it your own um, sort of stayed with me in you know in the, the type of riding that I did. But then you know also just in sort of like my attitude and approach to to life and to and later to music and, and kind of all things, you know, business and all that. It was also very in line with sort of my, my family kind of DIY ethos. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a family that was very much, um, like, you know, DIY type, type people. Um, you know, not, not in like the punk sense, just sort of in the, uh, the, the crafty, the crafty sense of the word. Uh-huh. So almost like making your own path. I mean, I remember I'm 35, so I'm a little younger, but we had the same thing growing up in Alaska, skateboarding. I mean, you basically kind of look out and, and things jump out at you almost like you're like, okay, where, what am I going to do today? And you can kind of find spots yeah. to skate and, and, you know, like old uh, 
we'd go to the banks because uh, they had those drive-through uh, medians and everything. And I think my mom bought me a fence post from a fencing company to set up to grind on. Like it, I I absolutely understand where you're coming from there. And it's it's amazing how many. If if skateboarding and Thrasher magazine weren't around, I think music would be a lot more boring. It, it's just insane the amount of people that that influenced in such a way, you know. And and uh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you know, like Jake Phelps and Mike Gitter were, um, you know, they were, you know, doing a lot of the writing in Thrasher in that era. I don't, I don't think Jake was like the editor at that point yet, but like. You know, they're pretty both pretty active over there, and uh, especially in like in the music, um, the music writing. And they're both from Marblehead, Massachusetts, which was you know near me. And um, so they came out of Boston hardcore, and um, so there was always that kind of like Boston hardcore element to Thrasher as well. And I think that was hugely important to me. The idea that like knowing that this was not just happening in this far away Southern California location, but um, also, there was stuff happening near me, even though I didn't know about it or see it. Like, I, it felt more real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's two camps too with that. Where there's the the people that they, I mean, they they coalesce a little bit, but they there's like the Thrasher people, and then there's the people that were super influenced by those uh, those early compilations, like the Fat Records comp, Punkorama comps. Um, yeah, you know, three dollars for you know thirty songs or whatever on a on a CD. I mean, my comps were. My comps were skate videos. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, like I mean, the first time I heard the Misfits, the first time you know I heard the Adolescents, the first time I heard uh, maybe Suicidal. I don't know. I feel like I feel like I heard a lot of I, I heard a lot of like punk stuff, like just from comedy. You know, like like the Meat Men and like not like Suicidal as a whole, but like I Saw Your Mommy is like a funny song. Um, <laughs> So like you know, like ten year old kids would like play that song, and be like, "Oh, mommy's dead." But then like it starts to the music starts to kind of creep in a little bit, and you start to be like, "Oh, this is actually kind of rad." And then like you you hear like, "Oh, what other songs are on this album?" And then you start to kind of get into the album. I mean, like Suicidal was like one of the first punk bands I ever got into, and I actually got kind of got into I. Then I started following them, and I sort of got into thrash metal through suicidal because you know they made that that transition. Yeah, I think I, you know, I think like I was into like like Tony Army and um, feel like shit, and 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 later like how I was probably even before I got into like Metallica and Slayer. Wow, man, that's yeah. I mean, I remember that there's that song. Um... I think it's called Code Blue by TSOL on one of those comps where he's talking about wanting to fuck the dead. And that that was always something that came on. And we're like, oh, shit. You know, like it was it was more about the lyrics at the time before the music. Crept well, yeah, in, I mean, you know? teenage, teenage boys love that shock value. Yeah, know? absolutely. When did you start playing guitar? I mean, did was guitar your first instrument of choice? No, I, mean, I did the whole school band thing. Um, and I played um, alto sax first and baritone sax and bass clarinet. I took some piano lessons. Um, so I was like a fairly musical kid and that was like, that was like an area that I did fairly well in. And, you know, we were in band and you know, I was a nerd and there was a bunch of nerds in band. So like, you know, there, I, it, it fulfilled like one side of my personality kind of in socially. And, um, and I started, then I started listening to music and taking more of an interesting guitar. And um, I, I guess I still identified as like a saxophone player until I left high school. I converged very well in high school, mm-hmm. but I had you know a few a few other kind of bands that didn't get off the ground before that. But, um, but yes, I, so I guess I was probably like sixteen or so when I started playing guitar. Okay, and so you had a fairly, I mean, did you have a musical family, or was it just kind of stuff was lying around? I know I had stuff lying Not around really. for garage sales. My dad, um, my dad did play music when he was younger, and he had a couple of guitars around um, that I would dabble with, but he didn't. He wasn't much of a player. Um, my mom wasn't at all, and they had essentially no record collection. They were, um, I remember they had one album that was a friend of my dad's, and they had 
you know, maybe like a dozen eight tracks or so. And that was like the extent of their music collection. I think eventually they got a CD player and had maybe, you know, a dozen CDs or so, but, um, you know, very, very small music collection. Um, my dad was just like really into motorcycles. And I think he was like all of his spare time and, and energy, um, at that when I was a kid kind of went, went in that direction. And, you know, they didn't like the music, but they didn't really spend time kind of exploring music. So, like, you know, like my mom just, she likes singers. That's the kind of music she likes, singers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not like they don't have, like, real um, eclectic music taste. Sure. So, like, a really a, a surface kind of interest in music where, you know, hey, I like this beat or I like this. They don't really analyze it like a like a musician would. Yeah, you know, like if you ask, like if you ask my mom, like what instruments are on her favorite song, she she wouldn't be able to tell you. <laughs> like she would, you know, she knows like a melody and and like the lyrics and stuff like that, but it's like, you know, she doesn't couldn't, couldn't tell you if there's drums on the song. Yeah. Okay. I mean, she's actively listening to it. I'm sure she could tell you, but like, she wouldn't remember that kind of stuff. So she's not like, yeah, she doesn't consume music like in a in a ravenous kind of way. Okay. And uh, so. So you got converged started out of high school, like you had started playing guitar. When you started playing guitar and, and taking interest in it, did you? Because I, I know you're a producer as well. So did you kind of approach it as a uh, more mechanically than? Um, I'm trying to think how to word this. I basically, when you create, are you drawn to create like it's in your bones, like you have to do this, or do you do it for something to do, like? I guess is some people say they they have no other option. Like this is what I was born to do. I have to do this. And some people say, you know, I'm afraid of boredom and depression, so uh, I keep busy. And this is what I like to do. Um, uh, it's a bit of both. You know, I think um, I think I can be happy um, not not playing music. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I need to be creative in some way. And, and it's like, like my parents cleared out the basement or cleared out their attic started in the addition a few years ago. And like, they found all this stuff that I had when I was a kid. I used to like, I used to design ski resorts. That was like my hobby. <laughs> I, I missed, there was like, that would just make trail maps of fictional mountains. I just had like drawing after drawing after drawing after drawing with like names of trails, like these mountains that didn't exist. And, um, and then also like, you know, like I played, I played D and D and I would like design modules. So I had like just dungeon upon dungeon upon dungeon that I had designed. And, um, and then later, like I started like designing fictional skate parks and, um, or like a, or I'd buy, buy blank skateboards and like, you know, cut my own shape, or like if I was done with a board, I'd reshape it. Um, you know, I, I was always kind of like building something when I was a kid, or, or taking something apart, putting it back together, and you know, so just just the idea of like creating something is something that I've always needed. When whether that be like making a song of my own, or recording somebody else's song, or building a guitar, building a pedal building a studio, you know, building a bed frame or a table or, you know, whatever, like that's, that's stuff that I need to do. And it's all like kind of two sides of the same coin for me. As long as I'm like doing something creative and I'm, and I'm happy. And music is just kind of one of those outlets. Music is, is um, a bit different than those things, whether it's recording or, um, or writing songs. It's a bit different than those other things because it's collaborative, mm-hmm. um, which is which is great for me because I think you know like a lot of people I'm inherently kind of lazy, and doing a creative endeavor where like other people depend on you um, is is a great motivator. You know, like like with saxophone, I pretty much don't play saxophone anymore because I don't have people to play with. I don't have people like counting on me to contribute. Um, saxophone to anything, so I'm not like super motivated to play it. Uh-huh. Whereas like guitar, for example, like you know I've got my my three bandmates that that count on me to come up with riffs and to be present for shows and all that stuff. So it keeps me involved in guitar. You know, if I wasn't in the fans, I, I don't know how 
actively, I would still play guitar all the time. I know, I know that if I wasn't this fan, I would be doing something creative. So. Wow. That's, and that's interesting because it's almost like you have like a, a mechanical uh, predisposition, but it's not, it seems like from what you're describing, it's not taking something apart and putting it back together again. It's taking something apart and then making something else out of it, which is fascinating because, you know. It's both, you know. Yeah. It's like I want to create things, something for myself, but I also want to understand how things work, too. I have that, like, you know, science brain. Um, yeah. I went to school for, for aerospace engineering, and I, my father's a machinist, and he he builds stuff. And, like, like, the bikes that I had when I was a kid, like, he, he and I weld them together, and um, like I didn't really have off-the-shelf stuff very often. So it's just like a general curiosity about how things work that that, that I've always had that sort of runs in, runs in my family. Man, that's fascinating. And I, I, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I approach like most things, even like creative endeavors from a fairly like logic-driven standpoint. Um I like a joke that I've like developed to create like a series of algorithms to fake creativity. Um, <laughs> so, you know, definitely not like the. Um, I guess I. I mean, I, I have like somewhat of an artistic eye, but I'm more of a. Um, yeah, more of like like I get, I can draw a building much better than I can draw a face, for example. Like I, I I'm more of a, a science person than a than a than an artistic person. Okay. That that's interesting. You can draw, yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. And, and I mean, you approach songwriting the same way. I mean, um, like this is what I want to convey. So this is how I get to that point. Or is it just riffing that just turns in? I mean, I guess it's a little of both, probably. But um, from that kind of a brain, how do songs come out for you as far as that process? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough to say, like, you know, how does my process differ from someone else's because I kind of only know my own. But, uh-huh. um, it, it, it varies all the time. I think, you know, in any kind of like collaborative songwriting forum, there's, you have to be open to other people's ideas and, and to be present and ready to react to to the emotion in the room. And, um, and, and that's, that's what we do in Converge. We're, like, as time has gone on, we've gotten increasingly more um, collaborative with the way, the way that we write. When I'm writing stuff on my own, then you know, things are very sensical. Um, you know, like even when stuff is really weird, it's still, in, I can make sense of it in some way. There's some sort of pattern, there's some sort of um, symmetry to things. There's, um, you know, things are deliberate. The things are very very rarely random in my mind, even though they may, you know, it's not at times sound random to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I can, I mean, well, even like if something feels really good, I need to find a way to like quantify why it feels good. Like I'm, I have a hard time just accepting like, Oh yeah, I like the song like that. I have to be like, I like the song like that because blah, 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 blah. I need an explanation for things. Like, you can't just let it sit like, man, this is great, and then just... I mean, I've, I've learned to do that, but yeah, but like, it's not it's not my nature. Mm-hmm. Is that something you learned to do because of yourself? Like, you wanted to learn to do that, or is that because of collaborating with others, maybe you felt that you needed to? Probably a bit of both. I mean, I think it's it gets... It's certainly frustrating for other people, I think, working with me, and, and like, that need for me to, like to understand and to put sense to things like when they just are like, they like it. But also the other thing that's happened is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in music so often and creating music so often, um, you know, Converge has, I don't even know how many albums and, you know, hundreds of songs and, um, you know, and then I'm recording, recording bands, you know, pretty much every day, but I'm not doing Converge. Um, so I've been involved in just like, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of, on hundreds of albums, so um, each each little thing is not so precious. Like when I first started writing music, I only had written a handful of songs, and I, I was very precious about everything that I did. Um, and I really wanted to get my way, and you know that. And then I've opened myself up to accepting that other people have have perfectly valid ideas, and even and have 
completely different approaches to music than I do. And I really enjoy now, um, you know, have, being turned on my head, you know, and, and, and viewing music in a way that's entirely different than other do music and, and, and learning, learning to accept that, learning to embrace it and learning to, um, just understand other people's approaches to music. It's, it's been really liberating for me. And it's only the fact that I've like made a lot of records that I'm no longer so precious about getting my own way now that, mm-hmm. I, that I'm able to like appreciate and enjoy that. And that's a huge life skill to learn by doing something you love anyway. I mean, that's, that's just like a bonus there for, you know, uh, something that takes people sometimes their whole life to, to realize, you know, it's, it's, it's well, yeah, I mean, I think it's very typical, like only child thing for me too. Is like I'm accustomed to just getting my own way. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm accustomed to either being the center, of, center of attention, or like being able to be like, you know, totally on my own and in control of my own environment. So, like as a kid, there just wasn't really that many times when I wasn't in control of my environment. So, like you know, that control thing is a big thing for me, and it's something that I've had to you know learn to really push. Yeah, I I I was reading about that uh, the other day about um, kind of how you got into recording. How you I'd, I think it was a quote that it said something about to be able to have you know more control over Converge's music as far as on all aspects is is that accurate as far as you know um, being able to have your hands in that side of it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I got into recording for a lot of reasons, but yeah, I mean. I think I started recording, well, I mean, I would record like our demos and stuff when we first started in the early, early 90s, but I didn't really start actively recording music till about 95. And then um, there weren't a lot of people in the punk rock world doing it. I didn't aspire to have any kind of career in it, but I, I did, you know, there, there, it was, everything was so small back then for our kind of genre of music that like, if you didn't do something yourself, it just wouldn't get done. So, we started sort of just taking more control over, you know, the business side of our band, like the production of music and the, the artwork and mm-hmm. um, the booking of tours, you know, everything. Um, and to this day, like, everything is very internal for us, all the sort of both artistic and, and business type of stuff. And the, and the people that we do work with outside of the band are people who come from the same, same roots as us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so at the time we were kind of mostly dependent on, you know, prosumer level recording studios and we'd go in and record like a whole record in a day or two. And, um, you know, they never really sounded like we sounded and the recordings didn't feel like we felt. And, and um, What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms. They are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, They have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working, as most people are, online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online. And splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits. And all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, you can use Spotify Canvas, synced lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. And you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid. And I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. Distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. 
Go check out DistroKid right now, distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. That gets you all of that. It gets you the past cast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls well, with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the past cast. The past cast is a podcast that I'd started separately that is me and another podcaster or me and a guest uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of uh, that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of, of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month. Cause I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. You know, like I, I think it's like important for a band to use like really precious with the music to at least feel involved and when you're recording on such like a tight time frame with people who don't really understand your music, you really just don't feel involved in the process. You kind of feel like decisions are being made about like what your record sounds like that are, um, you know, in, I, I almost felt like we weren't consulted on them or, you know, or I don't know. It was hard to, it was hard to convey what I wanted the engineers and then you know later we started working with Brian McKernan and that was a lot better because he came kind of came from a punk rock world but mm-hmm. at the time he was he, you know his equipment was fairly limited and his schedule wasn't such that we were able to like really obsess over the records the way that we wanted to um and I, was like, yeah, I guess I just felt that if I learned a bit about recording that I'd be like I could be better prepared for recording and I wasn't really trying to like record off myself but 
kind of it's snowballed into that over time. Yeah, and I mean, on the other side of the coin too, I was talking to uh, Adam D about this as well. When you're recording your own band, I mean, and you know, you know how you record enough bands and and been around it enough that you know a lot of bands have these you know wild ideas or are really into something that maybe is just awful or you know they kind of have blinders on. How do you deal with being the objective? Um, you know, force behind the board as well as the creator. I mean, I try to have a pretty amicable relationship with all the bands that I, that I work with, and, and they're they're generally fairly trusting of me. Mm-hmm. And I also, I, I try to approach it from, you know, basically the sense that I just that I just described to you. Like, I know what it's like to be to feel edged out of the creative process, or to feel like to be working with the an engineer that doesn't quite get what I'm going for. And I, you know, I, I bear that in mind as I'm interacting with the band. So I try to you know, make sure that they feel included and get to get a chance to hear their ideas. Um, I don't typically just like veto an idea without trying it. So long as it's like not horribly inconvenient to try. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times it's, it's easier to demonstrate to somebody why something doesn't work to just try it and demonstrate to somebody why it doesn't work than, than to just tell them, like, no, I'm not doing that. That's a stupid idea or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny, actually, like, half the time I try out their, their idea that I think is dumb and it ends up being cool. And that's another thing, like, you know, as I've made a lot of records, I'm, like, much less precious about my ideas if my ideas get vetoed or if somebody else's idea is better like I'm fine with that now I didn't used to be I used to always want to get my way and um, I'm not really like that anymore so sometimes it's cool sometimes you like to learn something new that you wouldn't have um, thought before like like recently I recorded a record that had like gang whispers like this guy had like 10 people in the room like doing whisper shouts and I was like, what are you doing? This is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. It ended up being, like, really cool. Um, but, you know, it took us, like, it took us, like, two minutes to try it, and it ended up being really cool. So, like, that's awesome. You know, it made the record better, and I didn't, you know, wasn't wasn't my instinct, but, um, but you know, it was cool. Um, so I just, you know, try to do that. Sometimes, you know, things, the thing that, okay, the thing in the studio that I generally detail is, um, you know, now that recording software is, like, way more accessible to people than it was when I was starting out, there's generally at least one person in every band that has some sort of knowledge about recording and records their band's demos and, and stuff like that. And a lot of times that person reads about recording in magazines, online, whatever, and they read that, like, you know, dude, on the uh, such and such, I mean, on that Brian Eno record, they like recorded the snare drum throwback in cleaner hose and then <laughs> with a mic in the trash can and like down the hall and like it sounded so cool and like that shit just doesn't work. Um, in, in in heavy music, like when, when music is like at maximum density, all of these like romantic recording concepts that people read about, like Sylvia Massey recording guitar through a hot dog and like stupid stuff like that. It is cool. It looks awesome in photos and it's fun to talk about. And, and people think you're, you know, the engineer's a total badass for like recording a guitar through a hot dog. But um, <laughs> it like, in the context of like maximum density heavy music, like that shit just does not work. So like, I'm, I, I do try to avoid wasting my time indulging people in those ideas. And I certainly try a lot of them myself and, you know, it just doesn't get the mix. Sure. <laughs> Recording through a hot dog. Granted, granted, if it's music, it's like I mean that's not even a joke. That's um, crazy. Granted, like in you know, I'm not always recording maximum density heavy music, so sometimes there's a time and a place for some wacky recording ideas that can be really fun. Um, but you know, more often than not, if your band is playing at like 280 BPM and with fully cranked guitars and a drummer that bashes the hell out of their cymbals, like your snare drum recorded through a trash can isn't going to make the cut. Yeah. Oh, it's like you're trying to create a happy accident or some kind of, 
or just create a story more more so than a than an actual I think a lot of a lot of that is that like there's like this sort of romantic notion of like how records were produced like you know you always hear about people like oh my god they recorded this on a four track in the woods with a generator or like you know they went to this crazy castle and did the drums there or like a lot of that is just sort of like the lore that surrounds the record and you know journalists don't have fucking shit to write about like they're constantly writing about like journalists always want to know what makes this record different than this than other records either your previous record or other records in your genre and having some sort of folklore around a record. Like, every band I record, like, the people that interview them love to talk about Salem, Massachusetts. Like, how did, like, being in the witch city, like, affect oh, your recording yeah. process? And, and, I mean, they, they need something to write about, and I understand that. Um, but, like, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it really matters. Um, but, you know, I don't know. The, folk, folk, the folklore of a record definitely sort of adds and speak to things and, and makes and makes things more interesting to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to write about. I mean, it, you can describe a song all day long, but it's hard, I guess, to write about just how great a song is versus the story behind how it came about, you know, or uh, sure. haunt, Rick Rubin's Haunted Studio for that Mars Volta record, and, and there was doors closing here, and you can hear it here. Like, it's just, it's like they can't can't get around describing the, how badass the song was or the songs are um you know especially if they're writing to the general public that's you know uh maybe has it like i was saying earlier like a surface level appreciation of music like that's yeah. enough to get them to buy the record but uh, well it's also i mean i think i think there's you know it's like remember when behind the music was on and like every episode of behind the music is interesting regardless of whether or not you like the music it's like there's a lot of people out there that care more about um, the story of music and also just like the the culture of music than they do about the actual music you know like the classic thing is like wearing a band's t-shirt but not listening to a band oh yeah because um, it's more important it's like more important to like let other people know that you like more of an angel than to listen to more of an angel or you know whatever it happens to be um, I think it's kind of kind of the same thing um, where there's just like a you know that 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 human interest story or the, the cultural identification um, is more important than the actual songs. Sure. I I have... Go ahead. Um, well, it's just funny because when I, when I moved down to, from Alaska to Portland to start doing music and whatnot, like, I would pick up these magazines that were, you know, more underground magazines uh, at the Powell's Bookstore here in Portland, and because I wanted to immerse myself into a different kind of scene. I came from like the, the, the more like California pop punk skate punk world. And all my buddies were kind of getting into hardcore. And that's where I saw the ad for Jane Doe. And I was like, this looks badass. I went down to second Avenue records and I bought it and I brought it home. And at this point I had not been into heavy music. I mean, Metallica was the heaviest thing I'd heard. And I put on Jane Doe, and it lasted. I didn't even make it uh, through Concubine, I don't think. And I turned it off, yeah. and I was like, what the fuck is this? This is awful. It's not, it's not, <laughs> not for everyone. And, and so I gave, so uh, the, other, the other guys I was in a band with uh, started that band, Portugal the Man. And so Zach, the bass player, I gave it to him because he was into like Pantera. So I was like, dude, you might like this. This is fucking crazy. I just can't list it. it made me angry and that because I wasn't ready for it. And now it's one of my favorite records of all time. And I went back and, you know, went through the whole catalog and I was like, man, these guys were great from the beginning. And now that I understand it and I always tell that story because it was one of the biggest mistakes of not giving it more time. And uh, it, when I was going to talk to you today, I wanted to tell you that because it literally it it made me upset the first time I heard it. Like it upset me, and it it was like this visceral reaction. I was like, "What are they doing?" You know. And and now after seeing it live, and you know, uh, being able to appreciate the catalog, it's completely changed my world on how I experience music. And you know, it was that surface. Well, I mean, at least we made an impression, I guess, right? Dude seriously 
and it's embarrassing to me now when I'm like, man, I couldn't even get through Jane Doe, and now it's you know, uh, yeah, that's fine, man. There's just tons of stuff that like I've attempted to get into at various points of my life that you know it didn't speak to me at one point, it did later, and there's other things that like you know didn't speak to me at one point and still don't. Yeah, um, it's it's crazy, and but then like going into you fail me that uh the opening track on that that guitar literally spoke to me like it was a complete different reaction like i had my headphones on and i probably played when i first heard that record i didn't make it to the second track for a while i kept repeating that over and i just closed my eyes and it was transcendent like it not to sound like a you know a, a fanboy or whatnot but it 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 seems like it was written for me that song like it was and i don't know I don't know what it was about it, but I can literally transport to a different place every time I hear it. It's just like this crazy oh, elevator, you. you know, and and but the tones that, that I want to talk about, the tones you get um, are just out of I mean, it's almost not to go too far, but it's, you know, it's almost Hendrix-esque. Like it's I can tell when it's when it's you playing guitar, it seems like through your tone or, or when you worked on a record like you can almost pick it out like it's. It's like this, uh, this otherworldly kind of, kind of, uh, kind of thing. And I was, I wanted to know, kind of how your relationship with tone came about, especially coming from, you know, hardcore thrash, you know, where things are like metal zone pedal, full blast. You always had like interesting gear, and uh, you know, I remember kind of see, I always seen like articles and things like that on what you were playing through, and and these different amp combinations, and and that got me inspired into doing the same thing you know, abandoning just the straight up 5150 and kind of, you know, looking into some uh, sun gear, which I fell in love with and things like that. Um, how did that develop for you? Was it, was it like a gradual progression or were you always into, I want to sound this way and I'm going to find it? Um, you know, I can, I can sort of, I think I can analyze it in hindsight. Um, a lot, I can rationalize a lot of it pretty easily, whereas, like, you know, when I was starting out, I don't think that I was able to to rationalize it so much. It was more just kind of, like, responding in the moment to things. Um, I think you do that a lot when you're a kid. Like, you, you have, like, these drives that you don't necessarily understand them, and then, like, as you get older, you do. Um, but, yeah, totally, um, I think two, kind of two big, two big things. Um, if you want to, like, Dumb converge influence down to like two things. It's like Sonic Youth meets Slayer. So, like, you know, heavy thrash, um, antisocial, satanic music, um, guitar tone, not overly distorted with a ton of mid range, um, like chasing in hundreds with a, with a tune screener in front, which is kind of like what they did back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Sonic Youth, just, you know, jangly guitar tones, weird discordant things, but then, but with some sort of like beauty and melody laced amongst like the musical chaos. And, you know, those guys are generally playing jazz masters and other kind of weird, colorful guitars. And, um, and like as a, as a human being, I kind of identify, I think more in that direction. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is why I'm not just like playing with black ESP out of a 5150. Um, like I like I like Fender guitars and I like you know relic guitars and things that look kind of that shit just looks cooler to me and fuzz pedals are cooler to me than than tune screamers and um, you know like you know just like a broken mountain of of beautiful gear just I think looks fucking cool um, and uh, I've never really been into like the, the modern metal thing. I mean, I appreciate like the technology and stuff, but um, I hadn't moved into that before. And then, um, you know, uniqueness has always been really important to me throughout like, my career. Like, I'd rather, like I, I think I've been quoted before is just saying, like, I'd rather make a unique sounding record than a good sounding record. Mm-hmm. So, to, to go back to like the skateboarding thing of like the reappropriation of environments, like, taking gear that's not meant to be used in a heavy context and somehow like shoehorning that into a heavy context is, you know, one tool you can use to, you know, make things sound unique. 
um, you know, using something as it's not meant to be used is, you know, always been a thing that I've done um, in, in every way. And then it just, it just kind of really comes down to economics too. Like initially, um, and this may have even affected our songwriting, but I think the second guitar I ever bought um, had EMG pickups in it, and it was that wasn't why I bought the guitar. It just so happened that the guitar had EMGs in it, which were you know fairly thin sounding and and hot, uh, but also really articulate. So it allowed me to play like fast, chaotic, messy music, but still like maintain a sense of articulation. Whereas if I had played some guitar with like passive pickups like some PAFs or something like that, like it wouldn't have been the same, you know, with, with them like putting out a lot more low end, um, the music would have been a lot looser if I would have played, you know, fast chaotic stuff with that. So, you know, maybe I would have gravitated towards slower um, music so I could still hear some clarity out of the pickups. I don't know. Um, but so, so I had the EMGs and then the amp that I bought was this trainer YRM. And I bought that amp because it was $99, um, not because it was the amp that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't remember what I had for Distortion Pedal, but Jake gave me a Boss OS 2 that he had kicking around because uh, the amp didn't have enough gain on its own. I think prior to that, I had some solid gain that had enough gain. I wasn't using the pedal. And then, so when I got the trainer, I needed a pedal because it didn't have enough gain. So Jake had this Boss OS 2. Um, and in overdrive mode on the Boss LS2, it's like extremely bandwidth limited, so there's like not a lot of bass coming out of it, and also not a lot of like crispy treble. So it's just like a really super focused mid range, and that kind of brought up the Slayer tone. And um, so that in front of the trainer, despite the fact the trainer's just kind of like a, you know, it's not that far off, like a Fender twin, um, you could get like super crunchy, tight, articulate mid rangey metal kind of stuff. Uh, that way with that, you know, those three pieces of gear. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I was off, and that was kind of like the sound and, and where, where our sound started. And then, like, the guys in Caven, for example, who are a few years younger than us, um, you know, we used to all play this, like, local little little team center kind of club called the Red Barn in North Hanover, Massachusetts. And, you know, they saw me playing that stuff, and then they got that. And, you know, Steve and Adam, to this day, still swear by the boss of that, too. <laughs> you, know, you got to see Mutoid Man play, and Steve's playing a boss OS too. It's just like into like usually a, a Model T. That's just like his sound. Um, when it became, but yeah, that was like the sound of Merrimack Valley hardcore. Um, so yeah, so it's, you know, it was like a mix of like a necessity and just kind of kind of attitude. And I think that philosophy has continued on with all the different gear that I use. And you mentioned the, the Totem New Family. I think that that was like a uh, a JMP and a V4 with a, um, I think it was a Providence Stampede distortion pedal uh-huh. going to those things. But you know that that pedal's pretty mid rangey, and I think I was still still playing most of the EMGs at that point. And you know vintage, vintage amps, not meant for high gain operation, but being being pushed into oblivion. Um, you know I like when stuff sounds kind of unhinged, and uh, those that that gear is great at doing that when. It, it's articulate, but still sort of sounds like it's about to fall apart and, and explode. That's that's what I'm happy. Um, yeah, it's certainly a time and a place for 5150. I have a 6534 in this year. It actually gets a lot of use. It's kind of like, I don't want to admit that I, <laughs> that I love it, but I actually love it. <laughs> Man, it, it, it just seems like you guys have... You guys just know what you're doing. You've you've Everyone has their place. Like, I mean, it, from the artwork invoking these you know uh, just beautiful different emotions and then the music just backs it up so much and and uh like i mentioned with first light like the just that transcendent feel of that tone and just the dissonance it just makes it so just a perfect package i think you guys have done that for forever i mean it's just been everything has gone hand in hand and and you know on the stage too where your tone is is uh you and nate playing off each other i mean it just fills fills the room it's fantastic and and uh you know it's uh it's just a uh an absolute total package and and yeah i'm really fortunate to have a a group of people around me that work really well together yeah absolutely well, I want, we have a few minutes left. I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the new record. You just released some stuff on Spotify um, for streaming. 
uh, that's, I mean, it's killer, but, but, uh, I've, I've kind of read different things where the new album is going to be quite a bit of songs, uh, kind of pieces from something else, or is it, was it actually just meant to be a brand new record? Uh, I mean, we, we have an album that was going to come out in the fall, I, I think. Um, okay. And so this, this seven inch is, um, is one song from that and a, and a B side. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the whole rollout plan of the album. I don't, I don't do a lot of like the business stuff myself. Um, but yeah, there, 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 there is a, a new conversion album full of, full of new songs on its way. Awesome. Anything, We've uh, been playing one of the unreleased songs on this tour as well, so I think you know videos of that are starting to surface. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly not the same as our last album, um, but I think that that's, you know, as a result of just, you know, age and, um, you know, people evolve over time and, um, you know, the inspirations evolve over time and, um, you know, we just kind of react to whatever's happening in the room as we're writing music and, um, so whatever the, for that stuff is, you know, can, can vary, but I, it, you know, it's definitely a converge album. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing it, man. And and like I said, I really, uh, you know, from from first hearing that the reaction I had to Jane Doe to now, I mean, total total one eighty. But the I just really appreciate your your contribution to music and and uh, the records you're putting out and and uh, that you guys are doing the thing, man. It really really uh, special to me to to uh, you know have those records to listen to and and to get to chat with you. It's been awesome, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's early in the morning and you're on tour, but you know, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. All right, Kurt. Have a good day, man. You too. Bye-bye. I see you later. Bye. guys that was my interview with kurt Ballou from converge and god city studios i hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as i did i had a blast recording it and a blast making these episodes for you i love it it's so much fun and super inspired coming down here to podcast movement seeing all these people from all walks of life that do this thing and uh it's still i mean it's been around for a while but it's still a new medium and it's unregulated and it's awesome we can say what we want do what we want you can make a podcast on, you know, basket weaving to uh, brushing your teeth. I mean, you can do anything you want and people are going to listen. It's really cool. So uh, we are on peerpleasurepodcast.com, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, download us anywhere. Podcasts are available. If you do use iTunes, rate and subscribe to the show. And look out this coming Monday for the Pleasure Seekers Club Patreon. It's going to be badass. I'm so stoked to bring this to you guys. And it's going to help out a lot with the show. So once again, Monday, August 28th, uh, Patreon, Pleasure Seekers Club. It's going to be live. It's going to be awesome. And uh, I'm really stoked to get that to you guys. Anyways, so we're going to be down here in California until Saturday and uh, hanging out down here at Podcast Movement, having a blast. And you guys will get this as we're flying home, as I said. But thanks for listening. And next week is going to be just as awesome. And we'll see you on the radio.
Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.